afternoon, everybody. I won't say anything about the temperature. No one's really happy, right, with this. Is there anyone that's like, I've been waiting for it? Really? Is that right? Liar. Man. Uh, It was 100 degrees at like 8 in the morning in Palm Springs today. I sent pictures of my weather thing to all of my family so they would believe me. Um, It's great to be with you. Uh, Holiday weekend. That's exciting. Um, Yeah, hopefully there's, there's a reprieve and we can be outdoors. Um, so we're going to uh, move along in our exploration of the book of Exodus, uh, which I have been um, helped by. I, I hope you're, you're reading along. If you're not, if you already have something you're reading, okay. But uh, you should. This is just a tremendous uh, foundation, foundation and future <laughs> for us as the church. It really, and today I think more than any of the passages we looked at so far, give us a sense of uh, what's happened in the cross with Jesus Christ, but also what the future uh, looks like. Uh, get a glimpse of it, which is weird. By looking to the past, we see the future. Um, but I think, I think overall, the, the goal uh, when we sat down to talk about a summer series was to, to do something which uh, would help us uh, think through what it means to be um, faithfully present, uh, maybe is the word, but present to the God who is present. Um, sometimes it slips our mind and we think we worship a book, like we worship the Bible, or we worship ideas about God, or we, you know, we worship some way of life. Uh, but Exodus, uh, in a very profound way, shows us that, that to, to walk with God is a, it's a big deal. Uh, God's presence is a big deal. I'm looking forward to our very final sermon in Exodus, which the, the end of Exodus is, uh, oh, it's amazing. Um, but today is very cool, too. Um, so, let's see, where are we at? All right, yeah, I will dwell among them. Uh, anyone know the, the reference? That's a verse in Exodus. No, okay, Exodus chapter 25. From, from in the middle of some of the most boring material, probably, uh, for us about the, the, the construction of the tent. Um, but what, what I'd like to look at today has to do uh, with um, identity, uh, that is how we understand ourselves, uh, but only insofar as how we understand ourselves grows out of how we understand God. Last week, we talked about, we continued a discussion about God's name and who is God. And if you remember, who is Yahweh? If you remember, um, the Pharaoh, when Moses came to him and said, let the Israelites go, the Pharaoh said, why would I do something like that? Who in the world is your God? I don't have to listen to him. We don't worship your God. Uh, Get out of my sight. Uh, And then we looked at how uh, 
what have been called the plague stories. You remember some of them? Frogs covering the land, the, the ovens, the beds, the bedrooms, the cupboards, insects everywhere, fire and blood and all kinds of terrible things uh, were sort of unleashed upon Egypt by Yahweh. And the point was, this is an introduction to Yahweh. You asked, who is Yahweh? The oppressive anti-creator, the tyrant, the pharaoh of Egypt, had a question. Who is Yahweh? And the story set out to tell him who Yahweh is. Um, now, we won't cover it today. Uh, we have to make, I have to make decisions about what we cover. It's 40 chapters and we only have like 13 weekends or 13 Sundays to do it. Uh, but there is one more blow to the Egyptians, and that is the death of the firstborn. We didn't look at that last week, and I apologize. We're not going to spend time there today. Uh, but, but it's uh, just a few words about it. Um, there is, uh, before anything happens, this long chapter about how to celebrate a, like a feast which commemorates the moment that Egypt finally had enough and sent the people away. And the death of the firstborn, the text says there wasn't a house without a dead body, uh, was, was enough for the king to finally break, say, get your stuff and go. Uh, get everything that belongs to you. And we see, we see the Egyptians even giving like wealth and all they need for their long journey. They don't know, but their long journey in the desert are given to them by the Egyptians as gifts like just leave us before there's nothing left of us because of your God. Uh, but we see this Pharaoh uh, surrendering, so to speak, to the immigrants' God. Um, so they, they make their way out of Egypt. And in chapter 13, which again we can't read, but there's this, um, there's this note that that the Lord, as he was guiding them, he knew that their confidence was delicate, uh, so to speak. He said he led them uh, like a roundabout way to where he was trying to take them because he didn't want them to encounter a battle of any kind because that would surely shake them to their core. You've got to imagine the shock of everything that's happened and now all of a sudden, this God is leading you out of bondage, out of like being state property, but to what? <laughs> What's the future hold? And revolutions are like that. It's, you, you tear something down, but you're not exactly sure what comes next. That's part of the risk. It's why many re- revolutions fail. Uh, but but the, the, the Israelites are fragile. They're not necessarily the war machine. They're former state property who were finally, for a few minutes, have their own uh, moment of reprieve. Uh, but God is very aware of that. And he leads them um, so that they won't freak out. He's trying to help them not freak out. Because what do panicked people do? Stupid things. <laughs> uh, they run And often they run back to the very thing that they just escaped because at least they knew the abusive situation. They don't know the future, but at least they knew what they got uh, back in a situation that was crummy. 
God is very aware of what's happening. Um, but let, we're going to look at chapter 14, um, and it's action-packed. So uh, I'll, I'll read, I think I'll, I'll read probably all of it. We'll see here. Um, but let's start in chapter, oh, and by the way, yeah, you have to have a Bible today. Yeah, that, taking it back. <laughs> These things still work, we'll find out. Paper Bible uh, or your phone. I have some slides, but. And that wasn't laziness. I just wanted to hold the Bible in my hand today in front of you. Uh, Okay. Exodus chapter 13, verse starting in 21, right at the end. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Uh, Okay, so I don't know if our minds can really conceive of this. We probably need some help from like animation, like the Bible project or something like that, uh, to even conceive of what this might have been. But you can imagine the experience of, seeing Egypt crumble, you're free, and here's your God leading you. Um, But he is a a beam of fire (laughs) that shoots way up into the sky, apparently. And he's covered by a cloud by day, and at night you see through the cloud and you see the fire blazing. And that is what you're following, (laughs) because that is your sense of safety and direction. But this is a picture of God, just like we saw. Remember how Moses encountered Yahweh, a flame? And we talked about all that that fire uh, communicates about what this God is like or who this God is. But here is this, uh, they used to use the word terrible, like in an like awesome, this awesome display of God leading them. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp uh, in front of Pi-Hahirot, uh, between Migdal and the sea, in front of baal Tzaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know, there it is again, they shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all of the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them 
all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahirot in front of baal Okay, let, let's pause there for, for just a moment. So you, you find once again the, the Pharaoh has his, the evil, <laughs> the impulse to control, to possess, to be in charge is far from dead, even though there are many dead bodies in Egypt. I talked about this last week. We, we see the Lord hardening this Pharaoh's heart. Um, it's not as if this Pharaoh would otherwise have brought the Israelites flowers or invited them to dinner. But what we see the Lord doing is bringing to its logical conclusion an, an evil, oppressive regime. Sort of hitting the fast forward button on what's inevitable. And so, but he's doing this still we're with this theme of, yes, to bring the Israelites out. But before that, so that everyone will know who Yahweh is. And we see this is, this is, really, this is really interesting. Uh, we see the Israelites going out and we're told with a high hand is what the text says. Uh, what does it say here in verse 8? Uh, They were going out, this is the English Standard Version, defiantly. It's really interesting. So you got, all of a sudden, there's this great confidence of these former slaves. They're going out from bondage, and they're going out, the text is with a high hand. The image is like, yeah, defiantly, triumphantly. And why wouldn't you? Because you see in front of you a fire-filled cloud guiding your way. And you saw Egypt brought to its knees and there's a sense of security and triumph. It's over. There's this, there's this like, you know, I don't know if it's like in your face type of mindset. But that's what happens when you mess with us. You know, that kind of uh, approach. But that lasts for like two seconds. And we see that fragile nature of a people uh, almost instantly. Uh, In verse verse 10, look at this. When when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel, it's a really slow kind of uh, narration here. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes and look, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. So it moves from triumph to deep fear. And why wouldn't you be afraid when you are former slaves, only former by only a little bit of time, and here comes, a, here comes tanks and Humvees and whatever else Pharaoh has after you, as if you need all of that to exterminate these people. But he's coming with the force. Let's read on. They said to Moses, it is, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand 
firm or station yourself and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Then when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his cha- when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, that's that fire, uh, apparently, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. The waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared as the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord or Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And all Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Isn't that such a story? My goodness. I I can't imagine the anxiety which filled uh, everyone involved. Because you, you, have, you have to try, and it's difficult for me to do this, but you have to try to imagine a fire-filled cloud in front of you 
and you're at the shore of a body of water moving behind you to protect you from an army that's coming at you. You you talk about a tight spot. I mean, you are between drowning or being slaughtered. Those are your options, which really isn't an option. Uh, Your your options are die, you know, or die. (laughs) Um, And they're called, summoned to believe there in that space. And and just the, I mean, you imagine like it would be so exciting to see the water part, but this seems to be a slow affair. It's not like we see in the cartoons where Moses puts his staff on the ground and the waters just explode in every direction and a channel appears. It says all night a wind is driving back the water. I guess we go down into the sea (laughs) as a way out. I want to come back to this moment in a few moments. But I don't know if you noticed this as we're reading. Um, This story, like everything we've read in Exodus, evokes the story from Genesis and elsewhere of creation. Creation is always on the radar, really throughout the Bible. But it's certainly on the radar in the story so far in Exodus. Right out the gate, the way the children of Israel are growing rapidly is a quotation, if you remember that, from creation. God willed that humanity would be fruitful and multiply and fill the land and rule over all that he has made. And we see the Pharaoh as a kind of anti-creator, turning the waters of the Nile into blood from the innocent children of the Israelites, trying to undo all that the creator is trying to create. And so with the frogs and the insects and the darkness and the hail, those become not just uh, arbitrary ways of God punishing Israel, but of creation sort of folding in on itself, folding in on top of the anti-creator. Is creation's given its stability by God's righteous reign. And here's a king who thinks the world is his. So he's undoing creation. And God allows creation to come undone on top of him. Now, remember, Moses was drawn out of the water like a new creature, a new creation. His mom even says, quoting, I think, Genesis 1, he was good. Just like when God would create it, he is good. He sees this child and we see this Moses, this infant, as like a new, like Adam or a new human being. And here, all of those themes of creation are brought back into play Darkness and daylight, dawn, morning and evening, wind like God's wind over the waters in Genesis chapter 1. And the waters, the word is split, which is the word used for what happens to the waters in the story of Noah, which is also a creation story. 
And we see the dry land appearing and a people marching out from the land. And if you remember, God makes human beings from the dry land. What is God doing here but recreating? He is doing something new. The idea here, Exodus, is trying, I think, to show that redemption of a people is an act of creation, God's creative work. Does that make sense? But it doesn't stop there. Did you know that Israel isn't the only people that lived in this part of the world at this time in history? And Israel isn't the only ancient Near Eastern uh, group of people who have produced creation stories. I don't know if you knew that. It's really interesting. Other people who lived near uh, Israel, around them, and shared a way of understanding the world with Israel. They all kind of live in the same world. They all look at the world in very similar ways, uh, like people always do in a in a kind of shared environment. They call it a shared cognitive environment. But they talk about creation of the world very differently because they have uh, different uh, understandings of God or the gods or the divine. And these, these ways of understanding creation, not like Genesis, show up in the Bible. In fact, all over the Bible. I want to show you a few. You ready? Just to, we'll try to do this fast because I want to get to what really matters here. We'll come back to that. This is from Psalm 74. Yet my God and King is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks and dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth and made summer and winter. This is a very different picture of creation in the psalm here. Here, God, in creating, fought some monster, apparently. He fights a monster and subdues it. That's a very common way of talking about the creation of the world in the ancient Near East. I wish we had several hours. We could unpack all of this. But they're drawing on this idea that our God killed the dragon of chaos which kept the world unstable. Our God brought order by killing the dragon. It's very odd. This is from Job. Speaking of God, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. In the ancient world, as in the Bible, this is really cool. Did you know at the end of the Bible when they describe heaven or the restored earth and heaven, it says there is no sea. You always wonder, well, like, why no sea? Like, what's the problem with the sea? Darren is going to be bummed because he loves to be on the sea. And, and I love to sit on the shore. But the, the image is... is Sea is that embodiment of the thing that threatens stable living. The sea is the embodiment of embodiment, embodiment 
of chaotic forces in God's good world. At the end of Job, we see God saying he put a boundary for the sea. He actually uses the metaphor, I put the sea in its crib like a baby. He says, God will not turn back his anger beneath him, Bowed, uh, bowed the helpers of Rahab. That's an ancient chaos monster in the ancient Near East. Talk uh, that, that monster that keeps the world unstable. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Look at this. In Ezekiel, he calls the king of Egypt. Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon. Look at that. Again in Ezekiel, uh, consider yourself talking to Pharaoh, a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. Look at what Isaiah says of Egypt. Egypt is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her, and there's the name of that chaos monster, Rahab, who sits still. Do we have more? Oh, yes, this is Isaiah talking about the actual exodus. Uh, Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you, speaking of God, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, uh, who made the depths in the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? There's more. In the day that the Lord is... Uh, in, the, in that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, another kind of chaos monster, the fleeing, twisting serpent Leviathan, uh, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This is from the end of the Bible in the Revelation. The great dragon that was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and all his angels were thrown down with him. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It feels like we're reading Lord of the Rings. But this is the Christian Bible. They're drawing on this, this shared cognitive environment that creation is thought of as something which needs to, stability needs to be brought forth from chaos. And in order for that to happen, the dragon, the serpent, Rahab and Leviathan, they must be subdued and killed because they are those forces in God's good world which makes things unstable, even hostile. This is a new set of glasses for us sitting in the scientific West. To put on the glasses of Scripture is to see behind evil, violence, and hostility in our world, chaotic evil forces. Pharaoh was a trivial being. What really is happening at the exodus, at the death of this Egyptian army, is not an isolated incident where a god kills an army. It's a historical event, but it's being presented as having cosmic implications. I'll, just, I'll explain what I mean. It's not just Pharaoh that's 
perishing in the waters. God is striking a blow to those powers, those chaotic forces, which co-opt human beings and cause them to think only of themselves and treat others with violence. God is striking a blow to an individual and a people who embody the serpent. Remember the first time you encountered a serpent in the Bible? Like chapter 3. And that too should be seen as a chaos monster in God's good world which needs to be subdued and brought under God, under human beings. So the Exodus then is not just an isolated event where Egypt, some Egyptians way back when died, but an indication of God bringing evil all the way down. This is something of what's going on at the cross, right? Evil and death, the serpent losing its ability. We have a blow struck to the serpent by God bringing new order out of chaos in the story of the Exodus. Is any of this making sense? This is hard. But if you plan to hear these stories, you need to find a new set of glasses with which to see them. To see that Israel is telling the story in a way that's much bigger and has much steeper implications. How are you doing? Okay. This is from Terry Fredheim's Uh, God's victory at the sea is not simply an event of local significance vanquishing a historical enemy, however important. It's a cosmic victory. With that cosmic element, Israel's liberation from anti-creation forces would only be as far-reaching as the next trouble it encounters on its journey. When God delivers Israel from this abusive situation, the people are reclaimed for the life and well-being that God intended for creation. God's salvation stands finally in the service of creation, freeing people to be what they were created to be. I love that. Remember, God has a plan for Israel. Israel is to be God's vehicle of bringing blessing. And Pharaoh was working against what God was trying to do, even for the Egyptians. And so he's not just putting down an army so that they can go out and then they're going to fight their next battle. But he's trying to put right which has been thrown off, which is to bring a people back to what they are created to be. Freedom in the book of Exodus, which isn't language that comes up, does not look like the right to do such and such. Freedom is found in becoming who we were created to be, which has been stolen by the serpent. That's still the case, by the way. But I want to go back to all of this is amazing to me that what's happening at the cross at the Exodus, is not just a small thing, but striking a blow to the evil which holds God's world hostage. You may not believe it. You may need a new pair of glasses to see it. But it's what the text is trying to do. And that's amazing. 
But I find that as the people of God, even though this is a tremendous insight, uh, we are often like those who stand at the shore with an army on the other side. (laughs) We stand frightened. And that's when it, it matters to trust God when you find no way out. Now, here's the thing. They complain, they cry out to God, and then they complain to Moses. They say, you brought us out of Egypt. and Were there no graves in Egypt? By the way, Egypt has like death, like cornered the market on death. There's lots of graves in Egypt. I think that's the point. Was there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die, Moses? Moses, the best leadership we've seen in Scripture yet. Do not be afraid. Station yourself at the shore. Like what? Why? What is that going to do? Well, what's your alternative? Turn around and fight Pharaoh? This isn't really, the struggle for the people isn't really about looking for options. They're panicked. There are no options. You see, the trust that they need, the stillness that they're being called to, something to do with inside. A change of perspective that they believe that this God will come through, even though all they see is water on one side and an army on the other. They're called to trust and they're called to be still. Be still. Station yourself and shut up. Shut up. Wait for God. If you try to worm your way out of this situation, we all die. Shut up. <laughs> That's the basic gist here. You know these, this line from the, the 46th Psalm. Be still and know. Everyone knows it, right? Okay, this is what's meant. Not play your favorite record, put on your yoga pants, go sit in the forest and be quiet. That is not what's meant by be still. Be still is stop. Stop. You're in a tight spot, but stop. Moses says, all I can tell you to do is wait and see today the salvation of Yahweh. But we, too, reject this posture as Christians. I think, I do, I've been rejecting this posture personally for some time. And the more I spent with these texts, the more I realize that in my life, I am trying very hard to not be still. To not just station myself and wait. I, if you're like me, you panic and you try everything you can to get yourself out of a jam that you think you're in. It turns out often the jams that I'm in, God put me in, but I try to, so I'm basically trying to run from God. Um, But what makes us afraid? It's not a sea in an army, probably. I think in the church, we struggle with this. It's why there is a cottage industry of grow your church in 10 easy steps. Books, conferences, podcast retreats, workshops. (laughs) Because we we panic in the church. What's going on? Think of us just here in this little community. All of the people that have left, the fact that people aren't streaming in. Are we ever going to get back to the way things were? Are we ever going to get back to conviction and discipleship and have commitment to the church? 
Is it ever going to happen? And who's going to lead us to do it? And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. Those are good things. But we panic like we're behind a scene in an army. The world is pushing its way in in front in a dead, dying, boring church behind us. I got nowhere to go. We need some answers. We live like this. It's a culture of anxiety which populates many churches, especially churches about our size. We're discouraged very easily. And our, our mindset is to find a way out. But as it turns out, nothing works. <laughs> you get, the, you get the, the bright, shiny uh, type A leader who you think he's going to lead you out, and then he falls over because he's only so good. You get an awesome discipleship tree put together. We have great discipling relationships. Everyone's locked in with somebody else. But that's still relying on humans' ability to help other humans. We've not, we've not interrupted any of that as a community with a cycle of waiting and being still and shutting up. Because as it turns out, God isn't just a figment of our imagination, but a present God who guides us. And we must wait and listen. But we don't want that. We're scared to death. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. But that's precisely when we're called to wait. We love the idea of power and weakness, right? Power or weakness, brother. Power and weakness, sister. I've been struggling with this. Well, God's glory is upon you because of that struggle. It makes sense individually when we're weak to see God as being glorified. But what about corporately? What if as a community in our weakness, God is glorified? This is hard. This is hard for us to to do what Moses is calling the Israelites to do in the darkest spot. And by the way, we ain't in the darkest spot. This, This ain't North Korea. But we find ourselves frightened. And the challenge, and I'm not saying all of us are frightened all of the time. But this is the case for us. I think some of the problem comes from... uh, having, as Andrew Root and Blair Bertrand, in their wonderful new book, you should read it, uh, When the Church Stops Working, great book. Um, But they say our imaginations are secular. Our imaginations are secular, not like biblical or spiritual. Some of the reason we're discouraged is because we have been sold on a lie about the way things are supposed to be from our culture. That is to say, it's never good enough unless it's busting at the seams and everyone's always happy. And there's growth after growth and there's more money, more studies, more more membership, more ability, more programs, more leadership, more practical sermons, more this, more that. We think those are the answers to a flagging energy. That that's what we need. Well, we got that not from Scripture, but from a culture wherein our church lives. And then we try to apply secular ways of dealing with those problems to what are really spiritual issues. Is any of this making sense? I I don't know if it does because I don't know if it does in my own head. But what I'm trying to say is, The forward motion of a church, the health and growth of a church comes from being led by God. Believe it or not, he wants to lead us. He wants to guide us. 
He wants us to learn to be still and seek him. And, not, and, when, and when some of us get anxious, what are we doing here? We've got to do something. Because that's how we are. We love this passage as like Jonathan and his armor bearer. We've got to do something. We've got to give God something to bless. We've got to do something. God's waiting for us. Ah, but we're not waiting for God. <laughs> There's a God who shares our dream, but there aren't a people who share God's dream, which requires of the church to do something that goes against every fiber of our American DNA, which is to shut up, <laughs> sit still, and listen because God will move. God will move in our lives and in our communities. And if we apply the secular kinds of things we're looking for to what we expect God to do, we're going to miss it. So we need to learn to wait for God to do what he wants with us. Now that sounds like complacency. We need direction. But we find ourselves just like these Israelites, frightened and against a wall on both sides. What can we do except be prayerful and wait? Okay, so what do you do while you're waiting? I guess you just meet and you pray. Wrong. You don't do that. That's not what I mean by waiting. I don't mean that we need to learn as a people to wait. That is, we just sit around until something cool happens. <laughs> That's not it. I don't even mean prayer necessarily. I mean prayer and worship are the, are the ways we stay ready for God to act. But I don't even mean we're asking God to do one specific thing. But we learn to listen for God, to sense where he's leading us. You know, one of the ways we hear God the loudest is when we gather with each other. And I hate this because I hate people. <laughs> I don't hate people, but I'm, I'm like one of these dudes. They're like, just leave me alone. Like, I just like I want to sit in my room and read Torah and be depressed and um, <laughs> So for the introverts among us, this is not an encouraging thing, but it is actually. Because God is drawing us into community where we learn to be open with each other. We learn to trust each other and we trust God by trusting ourselves to each other. We learn to share our dreams and our fears and our anxieties and whatever else it is we think of when we think of God. And we learn to open ourselves up to one another, and to God working within us. This means that we must have a habit. If we plan to wait and be faithful, I don't mean doing nothing. I mean leaning in to what it means to be the church, to gather and to worship and to pay attention. How are you doing? I'm almost done with my rant. But I think gathering, praying, worship, humbling ourselves before God individually and when we come together until it hurts, until we're tired from doing it and then doing it some more. <laughs> because that's, I think, what it means to take your stand, be still, and not be afraid. It's the way we do that. And then you know what the cool thing is about a people who are attentive to what God wants to do with them and they're open and available and they love each other and they're honest and they, they trust him. 
The cool thing is they stop being the star of their story. It becomes God. It becomes God at work in us. No leader or plan or strategy or discipleship program or this or that or practical sermon, none of that can do what only God can do in our midst. That's not to say people aren't involved. Moses is involved in what God is doing. Do you see what I'm saying? But Moses is directed by God, not his own imagination. I shared this a couple of weeks ago when Dietrich Bonhoeffer says God hates the visionary dreamer because we come to the church with all of our plans. We're going to do this and we're going to do that because we have to. We have to be big. We have to be cranking. We have to be excited. And to do that, we're going to need this and we're going to need that. And we're going to need this and more money and more members. But this is, no, this is where we are. Some of it's hard. We've lost people in our own church. Some of that's hard. We haven't even sat with that. <laughs> many of us, right, to learn to trust God with that. What's God doing? God still has great plans for this church. Like it's, it's still an exciting thing to be a community of Jesus Christ. But I think God has got us in a place where now he's like, now I want to guide you and I'm trying to get your attention as a people, not just a few individuals who are also spiritual. So we gotta, I'm open to this. We're, I, Scott and Daniello, I know they're excited about this idea. But learning, what does that mean? How do we do that together? Okay, my phone is ringing, which must mean it's time to end this. Um, well, let's take the Lord's Supper. Because here we find the serpent slayed in some sense, or at least mortally wounded by the cross. And we are summoned, I think, as the people of God to stand and trust in a God who doesn't just overthrow the present circumstance we're in, who doesn't just seek to change in isolated historical situations, but to overthrow and destroy the evil which threatens all of us, which causes all of us to panic and be afraid. The cross is very much a summons to trust, a summons to believe, to have blessed assurance, to look in the bread and the cup and to know God is leading. God is at work in his creation and we are a part of that as we eat and drink. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words from the Exodus. We see, Father, that you are against the violence which we bring into your world. That, Father, you call us to trust, not because you wonder if it will work out, but because you know you will deliver us. I pray, Lord, that you, you help us with the bread and the cup for it to be enough to cause us to stand still, to wait for you. Please, God, uh, open our lives to this wonderful mystery which is still saving lives in the world. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your body and your blood. And we imagine the resurrected state, which we can only dream of beholding one day. We eat this meal in your presence in fear and trembling and gratitude and awe. It's in Christ's name.